Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Adventures in DevOps. I'm Will Button, and uh, with me today, I have Jeffrey Groman. Hey there. And our special guest for today is Rosemary Wong. Rosemary, thanks for being on the show with us, and welcome. Thank you for having me. Did you work your tail off to get that senior developer gig just to realize that senior dev doesn't actually mean dream job? I've been there too. My first senior developer job was at a place where all of our triumphs were the bosses and all the failures were ours. The second one was a great place to continue to learn and grow, only for it to go under due to poor management. And now I get job offers from great places to work all the time. Not only that, but the last job interview I actually sat in was a discussion about how much my podcast had helped the people interviewing me. If you're looking for a way to get into your dream job, then join our Dev Heroes Accelerator. Not only will we help you get the kind of exposure that makes you attractive to your dream employer, but you'll be able to ask them for top dollar as well. Check it out at devheroesaccelerator.com. Our pleasure. So you want to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do? Sure. I'm Rosemary Wong. I am a developer advocate at HashiCorp, but I'm a recovering infrastructure and network engineer attempted to turn into a software developer who now just puts random stuff together for fun and for, generally speaking, productivity of everybody else. So I've been in the infrastructure space for quite some time. But what I ended up learning around, at least around the infrastructure space, was that it's a lot of software. And as a result, I ended up learning how to code. (laughs) Uh, and contributing to open source projects as well. So you'll find me working on a couple of things in the Kubernetes space, sometimes the Terraform space, console, vault, uh, and occasionally Boundary. Right on. That's uh, quite the range of products. Yes. I barely remember which ones are which on a good day. So uh, if anybody has a good mnemonic, I'm really willing to listen and use the mnemonic. (laughs) No, but I think that's like a really interesting topic to start on because I deal a lot with individuals who are either looking to get started in DevOps or just starting their career in DevOps. And I think there's this perception that you have to be able to jump into Terraform to Ansible over to Nginx and then deep into Kubernetes and just seamlessly transfer these skills with with minimal transition time. And so that's one of the things I try to explain to people is a lot of my time is spent switching projects or switching tasks and then spending the first significant chunk of that task asking myself, what does this product even do? And almost relearning it. Yeah, I started out as a DevOps engineer. To this day, I don't really know what the role involved, mostly because (laughs) it was never consistent, right? One day I would be working on a tool. The next day I'd have to pivot and try another open source tool. And then someone would ask me, can you shoehorn it into the system? And then the next day, someone would be like, well, my I need some kind of monitoring on my application and it needs to be on servers. Uh, and I remember being overwhelmed. And a lot of the folks I talked to who are going into either cloud infrastructure space, looking at organizations that endorse their DevOps philosophy are really overwhelmed by the stuff they have to learn because... You're not only now responsible for learning three clouds, three of the major clouds, at least in the US, plus any infrastructure as code tooling. You're also now sitting there trying to figure out how to code. You're trying to figure out how to open a PR, a pull request in GitHub to fix something that you need on an open source tool, which means you're either hacking in Python or Golang and then picking up Golang on the weekend, you know, and not really sure whether or not you're good at it. And then there's infrastructure testing on top of it. It was really overwhelming for me. And even to this day, I'm not sure if I've learned it all. Yeah, I don't know that learning at all is ever a realistic goal. Just because by the time you, at least for me, by the time I think I've got something figured out, I'll move on to the next task and then come back to that skill only to find out that there's been a major release and, you know, the whole thing's been rewritten in Go or Erlang and everything I knew before no longer applies and is the scientifically proven incorrect way to do it. And so you start the learning curve all over again. So it's, I love this. And, and Will will probably agree with me when when uh, when I say that 
we've had this conversation so many times about like what is a DevOps engineer and what does it mean and what does the title mean? What does a role mean? Like it's just yeah, it's it is. I think it's I, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's overwhelming to think about. In some ways, I think what it really comes down to it's you know if you've got if you are in that genre of DevOps, you're basically a consultant, right? You're basically sort of being asked to sort of step in and help solve a problem. And so that's really my, my background. I do a lot of security consulting work. And I feel like it's very similar in nature in that you sort of feel a little bit overwhelmed. I mean, I, I certainly do, and a lot of my colleagues do, when we've, you know, you sort of get thrown into a, a situation, you don't know exactly what it is, and you're going to be expected to be that sort of expert in whatever tooling that they're using, whatever the incident or whatever, or risk or, you know, whatever it is was going on. And you can't be, you can't just sort of step in just no matter how much, I mean, I've, you know, I've been around the block for quite a while and I've seen a lot, but none of us are experts in everything or we're lucky if we're experts in one or two things. I mean, it's just, you know, you sort of, you can end up knowing quite a bit about a lot of things, but I think, you know, personally, I think it's more about feeling confident that you can step in and help sort of direct the conversation or direct the effort down the right path, right? That's, I, I feel like, and then everybody just needs to be aware that, hey, I'm not going to have all the answers at the get-go, but I'm happy to sort of be that lead to sort of figure out, right? Do some of the research and we'll start to do some proofs of concept and that sort of thing. And we'll start to move down that direction, but we all got to work together and we're a team and blah, blah, blah. And I think that's where it gets really tough is when you don't feel like it's really a team and everyone's just sort of dumping it on you and <laughs> Right. That that's uh but yeah, I, I, I think that's sort of spot on that anywhere in technology today it's it's it can certainly feel that 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 overwhelming sense. Yeah, that's actually my expertise is finding all the ways that it won't work. <laughs> I think that the 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 sign of a of a true quote unquote DevOps engineer or DevSecOps engineer, we can <laughs> even throw that one in the mix. Right. Uh, as someone someone who is constantly finding ways unintentionally to break something like <laughs> and then is inevitably sitting there and it's like well we have to figure out how we fix it I, and yeah. and anybody who's in an engineer right is someone who's a problem solver so right. that's always the the best intuition well cool so tell us more about what does it mean to be a developer advocate Did i get that right at hashicorp like what does that mean on a I don't know. My guess is every one of your days is probably different, like like for us too, right? But but what does it mean? I mean, what what is a common set of things that you might be working on any you know even any given day, week, or month? Yeah, it's interesting because in the world of open source, feedback is tricky, right? When you have customers, you have a proxy group that you can rely on to get information and build the feedback cycle. So if you're trying to build a feature or you're iterating on a product, you have a fantastic group of people who will give you that feedback and will tell you they don't like it because they won't pay for it. And open source, we can talk about the, uh, you know, all day about the nuances of open source, whether or not it's free. But at the end of the day, a good open source tool has a community that's backing it and is there to contribute and ultimately improve it. So this in, the, in recent years, I would say 10 years probably, but more recently, there's been this role of developer advocate that's come around. And part of the responsibilities for a developer advocate is often examining your community and trying to bring the secretive feedback to product and engineering and continue to improve the product. Um, for my day-to-day, -day, uh, some of this is talking to engineers who are using the tools and saying to me, like, this doesn't work, or this is a struggle, or why don't the docs have this? Um, and then eventually either me going through finding solutions to that and proposing them to product and engineering. Oftentimes it involves integrations because your tool is only as good as what you integrate with. And if you don't have an ecosystem, well, it's it's not necessarily going to have the same adoption. So at least my day-to-day -day changes. It also involves some public speaking and writing, but a lot of it is talking to different folks who are using the tools and then eventually finding ways to solve some of their problems. So how do you find the folks to talk to yeah, that's a great question. Because <laughs> I'm sure um, that you just don't like post it out on Twitter and go, hey, does anyone have any thoughts on this? <laughs> sometimes it's not on, sometimes that works on Twitter, but it it's a weird, it's a strange reality that 
we we kind of exist in this in this space where if you're an engineer, you're subject to certain restrictions, right? On what you can and you can't say about how you're building something. And in open source, it's made it easier for people to be more public about what they say. But it's really hard to get people to just like volunteer themselves on Twitter and, and get that feedback. So a lot of what I do is actually, it's outreach, right? So whether I go to a conference and I meet someone one-to-one in this virtual age, it's usually someone messaging me more directly and saying, I saw your presentation. I'm seeing the patterns. I'm really struggling with this. Other times it's just general like virtual chat interaction, live stream on occasion. And someone will come in with question and we'll have an interesting chat there. Other times it's in community groups. So there are different slacks um, with different interest groups. And if you're hanging out in one of the slacks, at one point or another, someone will message you and say, hey, I know you mentioned you were, you're a developer advocate for this or you work on this. Can you give me some help? And so more direct interactions come from folks who are looking for a, a more focused experience rather than just broadly you know, casting a net on social media. Cool. I did notice that you you mentioned live stream and I saw on Twitter that you were going to do the bingo card for what was it? The number of times that you were missing a curly bracket. What were some of the other options on the bingo card? (laughs) So I I try to keep everyone engaged. I, I like live coding, which I get it. Some people don't like watching someone code, right? It's not the same as watching someone game. And so I try to make it fun. So at one point we had a pebcac counter a problem exists between keyboard and chair. So anytime there was a pebcac, the someone could count up uh, the pebcac counter. And in this case, uh, I'm live coding a secret engine for vault. Basically vault stores secrets. It's an open source tool to do that. And you can extend this secrets manager with plugins. So I'm going to build a plugin live and I'm going to code it. And so I had one of my colleagues generate a list of words that he thinks I might say, uh, including but not limited to revoke, lease, create, read, update, delete. And then we're going to play bingo as I live code. So you can check off whether or not I say it. That's awesome. Yeah, I was like, you should add something that's really unique on there. And then he thought about it and he was like, well, you know, got to keep it in in theme. But some of these things I don't expect you're going to say. So I promised I would not look at the words. So that way I'm not, <laughs> you know, introducing any bias and and making the sort of making a word bingo on purpose. Right. So why don't we take a step back? Because I think there's probably some of our listeners who are probably familiar with HashiCorp, Terraform, you know, some of the other projects that you mentioned, but may not have ever used them, you know, may not be all that familiar with them. Tell us, I guess, you know, maybe more specifically around, you know, so I, I know you're pretty involved with informa- uh, sorry, infrastructure as code, and, and that makes sense. Like, that's what Terraforms are about. But tell us a little bit more about that and, and you know, maybe some of the specific either problems that you've seen that like community is reporting or, you know, some of the interesting, I guess, projects or problems that people are trying to solve? Yeah, that's a great question. I think <laughs> workflows are really important to the HashiCorp tools. I I was really, I was someone who used HashiCorp tools before, not as someone who worked for HashiCorp. And infrastructure as code is a fascinating workflow, right? It's it's different, right, than than what you would expect when you are plugging in network switches in a data center or you're sitting and, and connecting a serial interface to you know to some device and you're trying to configure it. Infrastructure as code is a different workflow. And that's what has been uh, really interesting about learning and growing in the HashiCorp tool set. Um, if you're someone who's new to them, it's not necessary, you're not necessarily going to need to learn the specifics of each tool to get value out of workflows. So at the end of the day, if we boil it down to maybe one common workflow and two unique ones, uh, the most common workflow is I want to deploy an application somewhere, right? I want, and if you're someone who's maybe just trying this out, you maybe want a website. And it could be your technical portfolio, your own website, your blog, something like that. And a lot of the tools in the infrastructure space today, you'll have to cobble together somehow. And you'll have to figure out, okay, can I chain this X, Y, and Z to put this website up? In the case of HashiCorp tools, you might decide, okay, I'm going to define my system, including the website 
all of the stuff that needs to go to the website as infrastructure's code. So that's part of Terraform. You're codifying the configuration. You're able to maybe put it on Google, Amazon, or Azure, Microsoft Azure. And if you, let's say, want to get really complicated with it, let's say you have magical secrets because you want to store user information, uh, you would have some secrets management. That would be Vault. Maybe you want to control traffic between your application and that database with the user information that you're, you've collected. That's a little bit of console as well. Nomad is uh, scheduling the actual workload as well. So we can go down that path. But that's the most common workflow that I see as sort of the, the initial path people get started down. And then there are the other ones, which are all variants of scheduling workloads. And so there's the, I have an IoT or, or a, a whole basically a whole system of edge devices. And I not only need to schedule workloads on very lightweight devices, I also have to manage the security across a lot of devices with very, very, you know, with generally speaking, low maintenance or operational overhead. And so how do I do that? Are there tools that allow me to spend more time on the weekend doing the things I like rather than sitting here trying to debug which edge device is, who knows, miss like a, you know, sending something somewhere that it's not supposed to. And then you have the the other, the, I would say like the other edge case, which um, is tends to be more of the, I hate to point it this way, but more of the quote unquote legacy use case where you have, you have systems that you organically grew and you fed, you know, lovingly and you cared for. Uh, and now you're trying to figure out how to retrofit this into all of the new systems and workflows that you have. So now you have, uh, older workflows that you have to think about fitting into these newer ones. Uh, so those are the main three that I hear a lot about. And you know, most of the tools now are you're able to put them all together and, and mix them up and figure out what works for your workflow and how you're going to solve your problem. Cool. So when you say, I mean, are you doing all of that? So I mean, maybe we should take an example because it's probably going to depend on which what example. So what if we took like your first example of like, okay, I want to just stand up some basic infrastructure, let's say I'm doing it in AWS, I want to stand up, you know, you said, you know, maybe it's my own application, my own website, whatever it is. So I want to stand up, let's say, EC2 instance, and I want to slap some software onto it, like a web server and stuff like that. And maybe I want to connect it to a backend database, which might be another instance, or maybe it's, I don't know, one of AWS's own database service types of thingies. Am I doing all of that within Terraform or I guess, when does it become a bit more complicated? And because you're saying, oh, you know, you might be, you know, starting to use other tools. Like what's, when does it become like fairly straightforward? And here's, you know, the hello world doesn't have to, you don't have to go that, you don't have to drift that far from hello world and Terraform to be able to sort of put up some basic infrastructure to where, oh no, now you really need to start integrating with other tools as well. Yeah. So a great example of this kind of transition from you could do everything you could in Terraform. There's nothing stopping you. Um, someone even wrote, we cite this all the time because it's hysterical, but someone wrote a Domino's pizza provider. So you could deploy a Domino's pizza to your infrastructure if you wanted and get one. But yeah, it's there are a lot of extensions that you can make, right? But I think that the it's not necessarily... The, the the use case, right, that doesn't fit Terraform or Terraform breaks down as much as just would you want to do that use case? So a good example that I get a lot is you can deploy your EC2 instance or, or a virtual machine, but what if you have configuration on the machine? That's configuration management. Terraform doesn't really do that by nature, just because that's not part of the philosophy behind the tool. Um, that's not how it's intended to integrate. But maybe you need a configuration a configuration management tool like Ansible, Puppet, or Chef to help you configure your EC2 instance on the fly with more with in-place changes. You maybe don't want to build a golden image or a base image for every server that you have. You might have a million servers and it's easier just to update them all in place, in which case configuration management is a is a good place to go. And that's kind of where the infrastructure's code space breaks down a bit. It's if you're making mutable or in-place changes on devices or interfaces that aren't necessarily an API, you might have to go to another tool. And even other tools have their own APIs and own behaviors. So you might deploy a Kubernetes cluster or a container cluster with Terraform, but you wouldn't necessarily want to deploy everything in your Kubernetes cluster with Terraform. Maybe you want to use Helm 
and define everything in YAML. Maybe you want to use your own pre-written API, webhooks, etc. So the reality is that it's while you could do everything with infrastructure as code, oftentimes you end up picking and choosing the tools that are best for the behavior of the system. Yeah, love that example. I think that's so important to think about the, the configuration management piece of it, right? And, and thinking about using the right tool for the for the right job. So I, I, I think that's a great example for, for anyone out there who right, who still maybe just wants to get their feet wet with this. But let me just ask another follow-up to that. So, okay, so I want to use Terraform and I'm just going to focus in on the infrastructure itself, not necessarily the configuration side of it. Got that. But Let's take AWS as the example, just because I think it fits well with this question, which is Amazon is constantly adding in new services, new features, changing everything around. How well does, like, how do you guys like keep up with that? And if I'm going to go down this path, can I be relatively confident that all the new features in AWS will sort of very quickly get put into Terraform or should I be planning that, hey, if I'm going to try and do something more, I don't know, bleeding edge or, or more with, with some of the new services that are coming out, that sort of thing, do I need to think about using, what do you call it, the CDK? Is that what, it's, is that what the HashiCorp, yeah. right? The Cloud, cloud Development, development kit. kit. Yeah. Uh, do I need to think about that? Or can I just say, no, 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 don't ever have to touch that until you get really, really advanced and really 99% of you know anything you want to do in AWS is going to just spread through Terraform? Um, again, just yeah. focusing just on the infrastructure itself. Yeah. So some resources and some offerings are available as launch day, as as early as launch day. And that's through a good amount of partnership work, right? Because with AWS, you don't necessarily want to be writing. There's a line between stability and rapid support. You don't want to be writing code that is working against a beta API. That's the schema is not 100% there. And you don't have a good understanding of its behavior because the way that Terraform and most infrastructure as code works is that you're you're someone who's writing the code to address the behaviors of that target system. Uh, And unfortunately, for better or for worse, uh, if you don't have a stable target system or it's got some strange behaviors, it's going to be really hard to code that (laughs) into Terraform or any doesn't even matter if it's CDK or otherwise any infrastructure as code tool. And so the result is that there are some offerings, if they're stable and there's been you know work and testing gone into it, then it will be launch day support. But even let's, you know, even the CDK, uh, this there's so there's for those who have not had any familiarity with the CDK, so there's the AWS Cloud Development Kit, which is a way for you to interface with AWS offerings uh, in an infrastructure's code manner. But the CDK offers an imperative programming language layer on top of the cloud AWS CloudFormation declarative layer. And so Terraform has, uh, as part of the sort of partnership we've had with AWS, has the cloud development kit for Terraform, which similarly offers an imperative programming layer on top of Terraform declarative layer. We can go through all these layers of abstraction later, but so, so it's a choice, right? People might use one or the other. At the end of the day, um, both of them have to get extra code added. Both of them have to have the right testing in place. And so most of them, most of the time, they're pretty well aligned. There are some offerings that are really difficult to add to to Terraform. Um, And that's mostly because they're really unique cases, right? So you wouldn't necessarily have a lot of people using them. And the result is that it's really difficult for any engineer or any contributor of let's say the Terraform AWS provider to guarantee that it works because then we have to find or we have to have someone volunteer a setup in order for us to ensure that it's actually working. Makes sense. So it sounds like, I guess, bottom line is it sounds like for for what most people are doing, you should be able to do most of what you need to do within Terraform and not have to get involved with the development kits, the cloud development kits on either side. Yeah. So you, and there are always... There are always integrations that you'll have to write yourself. Um, right. Even within the cloud development kit, you maybe you have some kind of audit requirement that you need to send some information to a system for tracking and logging every time you create a, a template, for example. That's still code you have to add yourself. Um, and that's not something in the CDK. Similarly, in Terraform, there are things you might have to put outside of Terraform. And it won't be supported, and so that's the that's the tricky part. How do you have one infrastructure as code experience despite having multiple tools? 
So let's talk about your book for a little bit. That's coming out in, is it spring of 22? Is that right? Yes, I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Can we, what can we expect to see whenever that comes out? Yeah. So what I realized was that whenever I talk to folks about infrastructure as code, there's the getting started, but the real challenge isn't necessarily learning a tool and going through the tutorials. The problem is how does this fit in my team? How does this fit in my organization? And so you run into problems of collaboration and scale. So when I went into this book, I was like, all right, I'm going to take the scenario that I had repeated multiple times, which is I was pairing with a systems administrator who took the tutorials, but didn't know where or how any of the practices fit into their day-to-day. And so a lot of the book is based on some of the practices and patterns that I've learned just pairing with different people um, and thinking about it more carefully. So starts with a lot of patterns uh, in in ways of composing and, and decomposing infrastructure as code, because configuration isn't just copy and pasting, <laughs> copy and pasting an example <laughs> into a file and then hoping it works. Um, and it goes into some of the the more complicated things to learn, which is testing how you even audit for security or think about scaling security testing across your infrastructure's code. What do you do for continuous delivery, continuous integration? If you can even do continuous deployment with infrastructure's code, as a hint, there is a chapter on that. And the answer is yes, you can, but only in limited circumstances and only for certain changes. And you know, the, the remainder of the book, at least the conclusion, has a lot about what you do to maintain infrastructure's code because it's software. It's you, you have to, you are subject to the regression or to changes within any kind of tool. So how do you accommodate for that? How do you think about rollback? Are there patterns like blue-green deployments and feature flagging that you can apply from software to your infrastructure? And that hopefully mitigates any change failure. So it's a long process, but at the end of it, I just hoped it, I can only hope that it helps people collaborate and scale their infrastructure as code um, and get beyond sort of the getting started tutorials for a specific tool. That's a great point of view because I know personally, I've struggled a lot with different tools over the years. You know, the hello world example in the readme works great. And then I turn and look at where I'm trying to implement it and like none of the dots lined up. So I think that's a, a really cool perspective. Are you, would you say that existing or current sysadmins are primarily the target audience of the book? Yeah, I had a long debate about this one. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and I thought about it and it, it is so, so it's a little bit of half and half, actually. It's sysadmins, but it's also a little bit of a developer perspective. If you're a developer who is now responsible for deploying infrastructure because you're either a smaller business or you have some kind your your organization philosophically wants you to take on operational responsibility this is also overwhelming for developers as well so for better or for worse there's a mixture of systems language and developer language so there are mentions of patterns that might look very familiar for those who are in the software development space but there are also there's also a bit of practicality from an operations view that some of these patterns do break down right they don't map to infrastructure. So I guess the joke is that it is really a DevOps book because it uses both languages. I don't know. (laughs) Um, But it's 50, it's the aim was 50, 50, which is tricky. But on the other hand, I felt like a lot of software developers feel like they're in over their heads too, whenever they approach some of these practices. Yeah. I think that's the driving, one of the driving factors between some of the CDKs that we're seeing that we were discussing earlier is trying to put infrastructure into a consumable format for software developers. You know, if you try to talk to them about, um, you know, mounting a file system or, you know, launching a Docker container, it's, it's over their head. But if you instead just give them a library and say, Hey, call this API and your thing goes live and here are the parameters it takes, then it's something that they can recognize So getting back, you know, you, you mentioned a little bit about like security compliance, that sort of thing. You know, so how does that fit in? And, and I guess maybe just to sort of narrow, because that's obviously a broad question. So let me narrow it a little bit. So when I think about security and compliance as it relates to infrastructure as code, I'm thinking about things like, 
you know, maybe based on configurations, right? Security hardening, CIS benchmarks. Uh, if anyone's listeners are not familiar, the um, Center for Internet Security, uh, you can Google them. They have just a tremendous amount of benchmarks for just how do I like harden a different different types of operating systems. And it's well beyond operating systems today. It's like they have so many benchmarks out there. And I think you can even get like hardened um, images that you can like VMs, right? That you can download. So yeah, how do I, you know, so so how do I translate that? Because, you know, back in the day it was, okay, well, I will run, you know, some kind of a tool against all of my infrastructure and it will spit out this report that says, okay, great, 80% of my systems are within the, configuration guidelines that we have established that the security team and everyone has gotten together and built, but these other 20% or whatever it is don't. And so, you know, you go and create service now tickets and everyone's got to go fix stuff. So how does that paradigm shift when I move into infrastructure as code? Yeah, it's a an asterisk disclaimer because I get this question so often. <laughs> don't delete your reading remediation tools and your scanning tools. Like someone was like, oh, you know, I'm doing this now. That means infrastructure is code. That means I don't need any of these tools for scanning. No, <laughs> you need the tools still. All right. So with that in mind, you still yes. need dynamic analysis. But what you get with right. infrastructure as code is static analysis, right? Because infrastructure as code, well, whether you call it configuration or otherwise, is static. It exists. And part of what is important about changing the way you think about security in an infrastructure as code paradigm is that you're able to communicate and enable an engineer to build security in from the very beginning. So a common one I always cite, but it's one that like, it's just sometimes we get a little, you know, we, we, we make, we make concessions, right. To certain things, but putting zero, zero, zero slash zero, a TCP all, on a network policy, right? Like it's easy to do it because then you can test stuff and you know it's working. And it's so easy for someone to change a line in configuration and just say zero, 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 TCP all, and then forget about it. And then the next, you know, there's potentially some questionable bad actor doing something in your system just because they've managed to exploit that network policy. Right. And it might be easier if you scan the configuration and the code or test it in the very beginning before it even went to production, before it is even applied, because in code, you can monitor, right, when you're going to apply it. If you could do it early, then you catch that mistake and you prevent something from happening later. So a lot of it, I think, is an education, uh, is sort of an education benefit. You get the ability to teach someone better security practices from the very beginning. Yeah, there's, that's certainly invaluable. But do the um so the tools do the tools stay the same? So let's say I'm using, I don't know, I'm using Tenable right to do my <clears throat> scanning today, um, and now we're switching over and we're using, let's say Terraform. Am I still scanning with Nessus, uh, Tenable, and whatever it is, or, you know, is there, um, is there something that maybe I'm doing like you know a static scan of my Terraform code, and maybe I'm finding something interesting there. Or is it a combination of the two? Because I, I totally agree with you. I mean, I, I think you should always be scanning your, your infrastructure no matter how you're standing it up. Because, I mean, it's amazing how much you, how many errors and issues you find through vulnerability scanning. <laughs> it's a great yeah, way to exactly. find out all the stuff that didn't work the way you thought it was going to work. <laughs> exactly. Or like break glass, right? If you're in a hurry because you just need to get it to work and uh, yeah. you know someone who's using your product is complaining they're not doing something. Right. I mean, it's easy just to like, configure something manually and then forget about it. And then you're, that's why you have maybe something like Tenable that scans and identifies, hey, there was a break glass situation. You need to go back and actually fix this in your infrastructure's code. So it's a great feedback loop. There are static analysis tools that are more specific to an infrastructure's code tool. So that could be like in Terraform, there's something called Sentinel. Um, there's also community tools like TFSEC uh, and I think ConfTest, which is part of the open policy agent community. So there are a lot of tools that are focused on the specific formats of infrastructure as code that you have. CloudFormation has CloudFormation linting. But what's interesting is that some tools will allow you to configure like custom rules, right? So I don't think Tenable will allow you to do this, but um, there's nothing that says you can't use a tool, um, sort of a Nessus type tool that allows you to configure your own rules and scan 
the configuration or infrastructure's code statically. A lot of folks have mentioned to me like, hey, I will pretty, I'll, I'll just repurpose some rules from one place and copy it over uh, and scan it statically. And it's pretty much the same. And I think in, in some cases you won't be able to do it. And I go into it further into the book because it's pretty nuanced and quite detailed, but yeah. there are circumstances in which you might have a CIS benchmark, uh, the Center for Information Security benchmark, um, and you run them, let's say with Inspec, Chef Inspec, uh, on a virtual machine image at the very beginning um, in development. And then you still want maybe Tenable to scan it, scan the live virtual machine in production. Absolutely. Um, Hey folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production. And you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Yeah, and that is certainly, I think, you know, for anybody, any of the listeners who aren't familiar with these scanning tools, like um, scans, back when I was first starting, scans would do all kinds of interesting things, like take down half of your network and half the Windows machines would blue screen and the printers would start spewing out paper, like reams of paper and all that. But today, like the scans are so innocuous. Um, They just run, they, you know, they're on a schedule. And if you're looking at the reports, which is, if you're not looking at the reports, they're not doing any any good. But if you know, if you look at the reports, you just yeah. I mean, you can learn so much uh, about like your your example of the break glass or or whatever it was the OS on that one machine that the OS is still an older version that's not supported by this blah blah blah, and so the script didn't run correctly and blah blah blah. So that's when you find out all these interesting artifacts in your network <laughs> that all the legacy interesting things that nobody everyone's trying to forget about. <laughs> so. But yeah, I mean, it's continuous, continual scanning is so incredibly important. So one of the things you mentioned in, I can't remember where I saw it. I think it might've been on either your bio or or Twitter. It was test-driven development for infrastructure. What can you tell us about that? That was, I will say, I was kind of mad when I gave that talk. (laughs) (laughs) Because right before the talk, and sometimes in, in in the software space, you get these really fun debates. Uh, And I had, I was like already incensed because someone told me you shouldn't be giving this talk because TDD, test-driven development, TDD is dead. And so then, you know, I had this whole moment. So I think it was a, it was a talk that in some ways was deeply inspired by this. But in the software space, there's some in in general, like software development, there's a a practice called test-driven development. And the idea in its purest form is that you write the tests first, that are going to be failing, so that's red, uh, and then you go and write the functionality aligns with the tests. Um, so a good smaller example of this would be a user should be able to go and click uh, a button and go to this link, right? And so you should write the test that does the button click to go to the link before you implement the button that goes to the link. And the idea is that by expressing the tests first, you're expressing the functionality that you you really need in your code and not just adding some extra stuff. Because when you're writing code, sometimes it's tempting just to throw one or two things in, add a little bit of scope to the things you're implementing. And so the idea for testing was to modularize, force you to modularize your code a little bit more, implement the minimal functionality you're looking for, and ensure that any functionality you are implementing has a test to it. So the argument is, Typically, if you do test-driven development, you have 100% test coverage. Anyway, that's sort of the idealistic thing. And so when I learned test-driven development, I kind of thought about it like, actually, why don't I do this for infrastructure? Don't I actually do this for infrastructure? And the reason why I kind of thought about it this way was that I would often, back before you know, I had deeper familiarity with infrastructure's code, I would deploy the instance, a deploy, like let's say an EC2 instance, run scripts to check if it works, right? And then I would go back and write the infrastructure's code for it. So I do it manually and then I go back. So I realized I was actually doing test-driven development because I was testing it first because I didn't even know if, like I didn't want errors to be introduced because I couldn't create an EC2 instance. I just was like, all right, I'm just going to create the testing, make sure the scripts run on it first, and then I'll go back and create the instance. And so I thought about it, like maybe there's something to this that you can apply to infrastructure. And it turns out there are ways that you can do it. Um, infrastructure testing 
in general is very complicated because of resource constraints. Um, you have a very high cost. I mean, not if you're spinning up in cloud, but if you're spinning up resources, you know, on your in your data center, you have a very high cost to that. So testing is a little complicated. But if you think about writing the tests first, will that better structure your infrastructure's code? and better structure how you write your system or how you build your system. Um, and so the the talk itself was, I think was interesting for a lot of people. I think I've changed my stance on it a little bit. I don't do TDD, test-driven development for infrastructure. Uh, someone pointed out to me that they do something called test-driven refactor, which I think is actually probably a better approach in the infrastructure space because when you you might write the test, uh, you might write the infrastructure's code, realize it's not great. Then you do some tests, right? Static analysis or dynamic, you know, more dynamic testing. And then you go back and you refactor it to something that's a little cleaner, more sustainable, and minimizes the resources that you might need to use. So I, I definitely changed my stance since that talk. But a lot of people, they're like, oh yeah, you're the TDD for infrastructure person. I'm like, thanks. <laughs> No, I think it's a great point, though, because yeah. like thinking about how to test the infrastructure infrastructure that you build, for me, certainly does change the way I go about implementing it. And I think I follow a similar pattern to what you were just describing, where I'll kind of build the infrastructure out, make sure everything plays together the way I want it to, and then write the infra's code pieces to create that. And so I'll, I'll typically do it like where that my dev environment will be manually built. Then I'll build the infra's code to create that the way that it should be. And then blow out that dev environment and then use the infra's code to build dev and staging and ultimately production. Yeah, it's a legitimate pattern because with all the different clouds now and, and any other system, it's really hard to find the right combination. I don't know if for those who have tried to create Google load balancers, there's no such thing really as a Google load balancer. It's composed of like a forwarding rule, a URL map, et cetera. And no matter how many times I do it in Terraform, you'd think I would remember the combination that creates like an internal load balancer by now, but I don't, right? And it and if you get the wrong combination of configuration, you end up kind of in this weird infrastructure state. So sometimes it's easier just to go and find the right sets of configurations you do need and then port them back to infrastructure as code. I think there is a gap there. There are some community tools that do this, but there's a big gap, I think, that maybe that's the next frontier we explore, which is how do you think about the system that you want and then port it into infrastructure as code? Yeah, I think that can apply a lot to disaster recovery as well. Use the, use the infra as code as your disaster recovery plan which there may be a lot of opportunity there because I don't know that... I think in the enterprise world, disaster recovery plans are more frequent, maybe not as frequent as they should be, but I spend a lot of time working with early stage startups where the disaster recovery plan, you know, is probably something more like get whatever cash is available in the bank account and we'll try again later. Now, I think in the enterprise world, because that's where most of my clients live, DR is basically, yeah, we did that 10 years ago. Let, let, me, let me get you that document. You can take a look at it. Yeah, we've run a Coggle test, but that was like in 2008, 2007. And, and the tests went fine. They're great. And, and not much has changed since then. So we're good. No, I think that's what that's the good news with with I guess these new infrastructures co workflows. Like now you're forced to look at your disaster recovery, your passive site basically, and examine whether or not it's truly working. Because you can say like, oh, it's definitely deviated in configuration, you know, in this way, shape, or form. And if you try to if you try to fail over to it, it's uh you're going to identify quickly it's not going to work. But I don't know. I think a lot of a lot of the the people that I talk to now, uh, when they they first create sort of a production environment and they 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 make the critical mistake of not porting it the state or even the configuration into infrastructure's code, and they do what right. Bill is mentioning, which is they shrug and they wait for it to come back up. <laughs> yeah. So just to get back to something you mentioned, so I, I just want to clarify the point. So I can't just like diagram my infrastructure in Visio and like feed that VSD file into Terraform and it won't spit out IAC code for me. So I'm, I wish I'm it did. 
I right click so save as. Wow. I, There's I a. Yeah, no, there are community tools. So people have definitely tried. I think that there's an opportunity to do it. There are vendors and, and other tools and products that actually try to implement this. And I don't know how well it works. So I don't, I don't yeah. know for sure. But I think we all want that. I want to export it and then just create it. That would, that would actually help me right now because I'm making examples for my book. And this is just like... You know, I'd rather just have the diagram and then export it. And then you just get the Terraform or something. So you're working on those libraries as part of the book, right? No, (laughs) I wish, I wish I was like, at this point, I like, you know, in terms of the amount of the sheer volume of code that I have to write at this point, I was like, well, I will either write this code, create a diagram and somehow export and then have to maintain it later. Or at this point, I will, I will write this, uh, write the code infrastructure as code more immediately. So. And then I have to explain the tool. That's the other thing that you would have to do is explain the tool that you wrote. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, honestly, that would actually solve yet another problem, which is that all the Visio diagrams were written 10 years ago and they get dusted off once in a while. Once in a blue moon, somebody might actually dust it off and say, yeah, it's gotten so old that it really doesn't depict anything in reality anymore. So maybe we'll do a little bit of like revamping of it. At least we'll put the new logo on because that changed six times already. (laughs) Oh, wait, this one has hieroglyphs. Maybe we should update it. (laughs) Yeah, what's this font package here? Like, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, seriously. It's like, yeah. Or with that infrastructure, wait a second here. Cisco bought that stuff out seven years ago. Come on, guys. I this is like legacy, legacy diagram, legacy architecture diagrams. So legacy architecture diagrams. For legacy infrastructure, I don't know. Yeah. I, I have to think on this a little bit further. Yeah, but I mean that that is definitely another problem. I mean, how many how many people's documentation of just what the you know what the environment looks like? I mean, it's it's so tough. I mean, and I don't I don't want to make light of it, but it, I mean it's hard. It, it takes a lot of time to like keep things up to date, and everyone's just trying to keep the infrastructure going, let alone the documentation of the infrastructure. So it's a tough challenge. But you know that would be kind of cool if you could sort of you know, solve two things in tandem by keeping the documentation up and running. And maybe that's the other side of it is, what if I could build it all in in code and then the code can spit out the VSD for me? (laughs) Not sure which one would be easier or harder to code. I have no idea. There are tools that do it, which is good. And even internal to Terraform, I don't know if other infrastructure code tools have it, but they have a, there's a graph that you can print out or it's, it's a, Digraph format that you can print out and then use it and in, you know put it into a graphing software. It'll graph out dependencies. Yeah, so so that's a possibility. But this is, I mean, it does bring up a, a a good point, which is is code really documentation? And the argument that I got from a lot of folks was like, you should have great code so that it is self documenting. And I'm like, yeah. but you know, no one's going to sit there. Yeah. No one's going to sit there and be like, this is a, this is an AWS load balancer. What does it connect to? No one's going to go backtrack the dependencies, you know, in the code that easily. And sometimes the diagram is the only way to communicate really complex dependencies and infrastructure infrastructure effectively. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. I mean, you end up, I think if, um, again, having been in that role of having to try and decipher like what's truly, you know, what is the as built today, you end up having to go back, starting with diagrams, looking at if if they have, you know, Ansible scripts or anything else and, and infrastructure's code. And I mean, and then you're, then you're pasting it together across, you know, because again, all my clients were talking about having their own data centers, and it's usually more than one, plus they're in three different cloud environments also. So yeah, it's, it's a lot. And so I, I don't see anybody like just looking at code and saying, oh yeah, I get it. That's self-explanatory. No. I think context is really important too, because anytime you're looking for a diagram, you're looking to answer like a specific question, you know, and so the context of how that information is displayed makes it more or less meaningful. You know, if you have a diagram that shows every dependency there is, but you're just trying to figure out, you know, what's the network path look like, seeing all of the software library dependencies may may not be helpful and may actually mask the answer to the problem that you're trying to get. You know, I, I think that's actually a really good point. I mean, we could we could probably spend a lot of time on this subject, but I feel like um, I think that's a really good point that you're touching on in that 
half the time when I see diagrams, but beyond, you know, besides the fact that they're always out of date, but they're usually not at the right level of detail. They're either way over detailed in, in a certain area that's not helpful or they're way too high level, but either way, they don't give enough context. And I think too often the di- the people building the diagrams aren't really told like, who's the audience, right? Like who's, yeah. who are we building this for? Because I think if, if they had a better idea as to who the audience is, then you know, you'd know you figure out what the right level of detail is. Yeah, I think there's, it's different. It was different for me, especially building diagrams for this book, right? You know, I'm focusing on a workflow, right? But it was the best thing that I ever did was send the diagrams to someone else. And they were like, why is your workflow? I mean, I guess English speaking, right? Why is your workflow going left to uh, right to left <laughs> instead of left to right? And I was thinking about this and I'm like, about that. Uh, but they're like, the, it's not just level of detail, but also where, where is someone following along, yeah. along the flow of the diagram too? Because you could yeah. say, here's a network diagram and I have some servers and maybe you have some network segments available. But what's more important is maybe for the security engineer, where, who, which servers are communicating with each other. It's not about yeah. the network IP addresses or the CIDR ranges. It's about right. Is the server connecting to this one? Unfortunately, we don't have that like nice, you know, drill in tool or like change views, change layers. I know there are some diagrams that do it, but right. um, it's definitely uh, not that easy to produce. Right, right. Well, and especially because once you start sharing them, you're sharing them out as like, you know, a PDF or something static anyway. And then whatever tool you use to generate it isn't available. So, yeah, yeah, the drill down would be nice though. Well, cool. What else, Will? Should we? Uh, did, did we hit all the? Did, did we grill rosemary enough? I don't know. I think so. I mean, <laughs> I felt I felt like we got to an appropriate level of detail without causing her to just abandon the interview altogether. Listeners can't huh? see, but she is still smiling. So I think we're good. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mind. I you know I don't mind. I think it's you know the 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 most challenging question that I have gotten from anyone. It, in the in the DevOps or infrastructure space is tell me like tell me the right way to do something or yeah. is this completely wrong and I'm like yeah. I, I can't tell you this is completely wrong because it works for you uh, at this <laughs> point in time uh, right. so that's the most challenging one that you know I'll be like deer in headlights kind of thing so you know if there's ever any more complicated questions I'm usually like hmm let me find a better answer for it but when it comes to like is this wrong or is this the exact correct way to do it I that's the one that stumps me the most. Yeah, that's a tough one. That's always a tough one to answer because I don't think there's any absolutes. I mean, there's always many ways to solve a problem, at least more than one anyway. So Yeah, I had a long debate with a, with a colleague of mine about continuous delivery versus continuous deployment, continuous integration for infrastructure, right? Um, so for those who are not as familiar, uh, you know, we're, we're, we'll omit continuous integration for a moment, but... Uh, the idea of continuous delivery, at least from the infrastructure standpoint, is that do you wait for a manual approval from your team or from your peers or from a change advisory board before you click, okay, let me apply it to my infrastructure? And then there's continuous deployment, which is, it doesn't matter. As long as my tests pass, I have adequate tests, I feel confident, it will go straight to production and it will just go to my infrastructure. And someone was of the camp that you can do purely continuous deployment, meaning it goes straight through, no checks, no nothing. You, hmm. you can write all the tests you need for it to go to production. But I was like, do you really want to do this, especially if you have changes that are particularly disruptive and have to do with stateful infrastructure? Like, right. you don't want to just be like, you don't want to have the confidence to say like, oh, I'm going to change this, this you know schema in a database. And then you simultaneously upgrade the database using your infrastructure as code for some reason. And then now you've got corrupted data. These things, it's not 100% perfect, but you do need some manual approvals. And all of this is basically to say like, I, at that point, I was, that was the, my, you're wrong moment. But, um, <laughs> you know, they were still, they were still in the right for a lot of reasons, right? You, yeah. you might favor one over the other, but uh, it, it, I got a little bit like, oh, no, don't do that. Don't do that. All right. I'll, I'll have to share one because, I mean, it's not, it's one I I've heard several times from from clients that are in the um, so their companies that are publicly traded so they fall under SOX, and SOX has all their right oh you know where I'm going already I can see this, so you know SOX has all the separation of duties um, issues and people are like 
oh no, we don't do DevOps here because socks. You have to have separation of duties. The engineer or the, I'm sorry, the developers cannot be promoting code or infrastructure in this example uh, into production. Somebody else has to push that button. She's like, really? Come on. There are ways to do this without falling, you know, without like failing compliance with the Sarbanes-Oxley law. Sorry, that's ridiculous. <laughs> that is, yes, that is the exact example that I was like, I was, yeah. Come on. Go on. <laughs> like what, what millennium are we living in, people? Come on. <laughs> Sorry, because of socks, we have to live in the 1990s. You are stuck in the 1990s forever. You know, Be happy you're not is- in the 1980s. I get, I get where it's coming from, but there's nothing that says there must like this is exactly point in time what it was, what it must be. I mean, there's an you have to have the auditability, right? And right. if you have two people who are who have what is I guess classified as separation of duties, you know, either doing a code review, right, before you're even putting it in test, and then you have someone you know secondary to that product product manager, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Reviewing that, you are you're able to audit at the very least two people yeah. who have reviewed and, and, and to your point, you know, as long as you've got those tests that are running, especially if you're doing that before you promote into, into production, you know, and you've got the right people who are auditing those test results and saying, Yep, you know, it looks good, and oh no, it doesn't look good, and we can always roll back if we have to. We have some kind of you know regression plan in place. Yeah, but on, honestly, most of SOX is all about not cooking the financial books. It was all about Enron and and how you know their finance. It was all about the finances. It wasn't about promoting code into production. Come on, <laughs> I, you know maybe this is something with like business domain knowledge in the code base or something. That this I just I I've never actually looked into the history of why this was a uh, why this yeah, became I mean, that, a policy. That's where socks came from. I mean, you know, some of us, myself included, have been around since Enron went down the you know went down the drain. Uh, and that's where SOX came out of was was that, but that was all about because they didn't have enough financial controls around the books and they were cooking the books and all that. And I think part of it, why it goes into the IT systems is that, let's face it, the books today are all online. You know, they're all in Oracle or in SAP or something like that. And there you have a lot of, I mean, if you look at how access control is done within those systems, there's all kinds of separation of duties and there's all kinds of tools that you can run that audit those systems to make sure that you do have separation of duties that you can't cook the books. Um, I mean, that's not my area of expertise, so I don't, you know, but I I know enough, like I've seen it enough times, but it has nothing to do with application development or DevOps and promoting code into production. (laughs) Anyway. Get off my soapbox now, but uh, I mean, that's just such utter silliness. Hey, folks, I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been working a lot on figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams or becoming the top 5% of developers in the field. If you're looking to level up, figure out how to contribute more, get the career you want, get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want, then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, and I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become one in 20 of the best developers out there? And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit. And you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. All right. Well, what do you think? On that note, should we move over to picks? I think so. Seems like a good segue. <laughs> anybody going to pick a uh, Sox auditor? Is, that, is it on anybody's list for today? No, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm, I'm in Chicago. I can pick the White Sox. There you go. I mean, if they'll sign the report, I say go for <laughs> it. Maybe as qualified as some other Sox auditors. Possible. <laughs> also, I mean, that's uh, Arthur Anderson went away. So, <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. So, um, my pick for this week is is actually going to be my Evo stand up desk. Um, I've had it for just over a year now, and it's obviously does the stand up thing as implied by the name, which is really cool. You know, just because working so much at a desk, it's nice to be able to stand up, sit down, move around, and I've just been really impressed with the quality of it because with all things 
hardware, whether it's um, servers or cell phones or desks, I'm not gentle with them. And so the desk has really taken a beating over the year and it's held up really well and it's um, it's really heavy duty. So I've just really been happy with it. The only thing I didn't like about it is the keyboard tray, which the keyboard tray itself, you know, was really high quality. It's heavy duty. You know, the thing that I don't like about it is it just slides in and out forward and back. It doesn't do the, the twists and turns, you know, so if at the right. end of the day, I want to drop the desk down in low rider mode and pop the keyboard up high and put my feet on the desk. You know, it doesn't really do that. So that was, that's been the only objection I've had to it. But aside from that, if you're looking for a stand up desk, um, I've been really happy with my Evo desk. Cool. I should have heeded that recommendation a while ago. I bought a new standing desk. <laughs> it's functional. It's functional for the, for the space. So I'll stick with it. But you know, there are some flaws. Well, <laughs> Am I allowed to say my pick now? <laughs> okay. Awesome. So I guess my pick for the prerequisite plug is a book. I have a book out. It's Essential Infrastructure as Code. Um, check it out on Manning Publications. Um, but more importantly is that the reason why I pick it is that I do want to know if you learn from it or if there's something about it that you're like, hey, you got this wrong. Um, <laughs> I'm open to the feedback. Uh, so if you do if you do pick up a copy and you read through a couple of chapters and it is it is either helping you or you're finding that some of the patterns you know don't make sense for what you do, always just reach out to me. On that note, it's um, so it's not out yet, but I did see that it's on the MEEP program, right? The Manning Early Access Program. So does that mean parts of it are available for download right now? Yes. So as we go along, the chapters are going to be available and released slowly. The full copy of the book will be available spring 2022. And in the meantime, there are full code examples. So if you ever want to see me continuously deliver my book code examples, you're more than welcome to check out that GitHub for it too. Nice. Yeah, but it's in, it is in early access. So there are, right at the time of this recording, there are five chapters available. Right. So we don't even have to wait. Nice. And how do people get a hold of you if they want to give you feedback? Is it through the Manning website or is there a better way through Twitter or somewhere else? Yeah. So there's a live forum for the book when it's in early access, but you can always get in touch with me more directly. I'm on Twitter at J O A T M O N 8 that's jack of all trades, master of none, zero eight. <laughs> uh, yeah, because literally that's what happens. Love it. Yeah. And uh, you can always reach out to me on LinkedIn as well. I'm at Rosemary, W-A-N-G, Rosemary Wang, Wong on there. But either way, reach out to me. I, I'm, I'm always looking forward to hearing feedback or things other people are learning as well. Cool. All right. So I'm, I'm going to give you the anti... The end I picked then, because you guys both picked your standing desk. So listeners won't be able to see this, but you can see my standing desk is sitting in the corner of my office. <laughs> so, because I, I, so I didn't have like, I, I actually, one of my hobbies is I like to do a lot of woodworking and stuff. So I, I built the desk that I use and I did not build it as like a standing desk. I think back when I was doing this, I didn't find hardware that, you know, sort of to build a desk that would sort of go up and down. So um, a couple of years ago, I bought one of those, you know, the things that sort of sit on top of the desk. And then, you know, you sort of put your, you can mount your screens to it. It has a keyboard tray built in and then you can sort of just stand up and then like the whole thing, like you hit, you got a couple of handles, one on each side, and you just sort of lift it up and, and you do that. And I recently, in the last couple of months, took it off my desk. <laughs> I was so annoyed with just how it sort of just made like the desk space you know the space of the desk just unusable just because it was like sitting on top and there's like this extra platform and then it had the keyboard tray built in but it was on top of the desk and so so the keyboard tray wasn't all that helpful because it was a little bit higher than i would want it to be so like it just wasn't and then what i found so here's the my i guess my anti-pick is that what i'm starting to do instead is just get up away from my desk and take a walk more often <laughs> has actually been really working well like i just i'm like I'll, I'll get to be you know get to get to that point you know everyone gets to that point where you know you're you're doing con constructive or creative work and then you get to the point you're like okay i haven't been doing creative work in the last 10 minutes it's time to like get up <laughs> move around do something else um and then come back and i find that actually that's working for me um but now it's kind of funny i just saw in I think it was Rockler, which is it's a company that you know yeah they've got a catalog plus they've got locations in different uh, cities around the country or in the U.S. 
um, where they sell woodworking tools and kits and other things. And I just saw that they have an online kit for building like just a legs piece of a standing desk. So I will probably check that out and see if it'll work with what I did. And I'll, I'll definitely check that out because that would actually be kind of cool to, to go to just stand up once in a while and not have to have some kooky thing that just sits on top of the desk that's just kludgy and all that. So that's my pick and anti-pick for the week. Nice. That's got me thinking. It'd be cool to take some lowrider hydraulics and make a custom stand-up desk. Oh, nice. Yeah. Nice. You know how like five car batteries in your office? I love it. (laughs) (laughs) You Don't forget the lights, right? A lot of the desks these days... You have to have all the LEDs and you have oh, to tune them like to the it. right color. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You got to put it on the desk and like some music too. I mean, yeah, I put some uh, 15 inch subwoofers underneath my desk. So whenever oh, nice. I drop it down to low right yeah. mode, the whole neighborhood knows. Well, it, back in the day when I was an electrical engineer, we, there was, a, we built a table, but it, it has, a, it had sensors embedded in it that would change color based on uh, based on the the, the music, right? The, amp, the, the amplitude, funny. I guess. <laughs> yeah. So it would detect it and then it would change it. Uh, and so it lit up based on sort of to the beat, right? So you could get really, uh, really complicated with it too. I see a new project in my future. And the hydraulic system with the beat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all right. <laughs> well, why didn't you get any code written today? Well, because I only had three legs working on my hydraulic desk. <laughs> it was at an angle. <laughs> Such is life. All right. So I think that's about it. All right. I put uh, links for the uh, the Rockler um, adjustable height sit stand desk if anybody is interested. And I put a link to Rosemary's book on manning.com if anybody wants to take a look. Hopefully that's a long link, but hopefully that's uh, that's the right one. Yep, that is. Cool. All right. Well, thank you so much, Rosemary, for uh, for joining us today. I, I This was a great conversation. I had a lot of fun with it. It was fun to explore infrastructure as code and just talk about all the ins and outs of it. So hopefully our listeners also got a lot out of that. I know we had a lot of fun. So so thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I, uh, I didn't expect us to sneak uh, SOX compliance in there, but that was a <laughs> pleasant surprise. Hey, Someone would have won bingo if they had it on their card. I don't know. Yeah. Anytime you get a security guy in the room, like it's like a wild card. You just never know where the conversation is going to go. Oh, that's a good idea. We should do bingo cards for the podcast. We should. We should absolutely do that. Get you one know, of the sponsors to give a prize. Tie it into like otter.ai and like just it'll just do a running tally of like all of the, the, the words that are coming up. And it's sort of, you know, statistically, it'll just tell us like what's coming up more often than what. You know that DevOps is always going to be one of those. It's going on the tops, but you never know about the rest. (laughs) All right, cool. I think we've um, exhausted the topic. All right. Close this out. Wait, what's the close out? I don't remember that one. Max out. Max out. (laughs) That's what what Chuck always says. So we could do, all right, everyone, there's a stand in max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.